Hi, folks. Welcome to episode seven, part two, Emmett Till. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about the very dark subject of the incident involving Emmett and Emmett's death. My name is Dan Brady. And joining me I'm, is, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm Johnny Smith. I was just thinking, uh, I'm, I'm not doing this uh, to be a dick, Dan, but the murder of Emmett Till. Murder. What did I say? Incident. No, I was talking about the uh, the wolf whistle. Uh, incident and then death. When yes. I, I, I just feel like it needs to be clear that just I'm sorry. Yes. Was the wolf whistle and the murder of Emmett Till. <clears throat> sorry, I'm just trying to maintain my composure here. We're gonna go slow. It's a uh, it's a very serious topic. So we've been talking about the differences between Chicago and the South. And this is the environment that Emmett Till grows up in, in Chicago, um, where blacks are still mistreated, but they're not, you know, like lower than the dirt you step on. Dan, can we have a quick reminder of what uh, year this is? 1955, the summer of 1955, okay. Emmett Till graduates from McCosh Elementary, and he was looking forward to a summer of fun. He and his mother planned a trip to Omaha to visit family. Minnie Manuso and the White Sox were playing well. He was a huge fan of the White Sox, and he had all of June, July, and August before he'd have to go back to school. But Emmett's trip to Omaha got canceled when his great uncle from Mississippi, Mose Wright, came to Chicago with two of his grandsons. We already talked about him in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, this is who House Emmett was uh, at when he was kidnapped. Yeah. Emmett heard that mm -hmm. Uncle Mose was in town, recalls <laughs> Emmett's mother, and the two boys that he grew up with, and they were going back to Mississippi. That's what Emmett wanted to do. Messed up our plans completely, completely. After a lot of pressure, my mother and I decided it would be all right to let Emmett go to Mississippi. Now, again, there is a big fear on Emmett going to the South because he has no idea what that culture is like at all. See, and it's unfortunate because I don't care what time period it is. He shouldn't have had to worry uh, about about uh, racism and prejudice and violence against him just because of the color of his skin. And, you know, it seems like the author uh, of the book you were reading is pushing that, you know, he didn't, he didn't know. He didn't know. Like, uh, it was everything. Every documentary yeah. I've read, everything. They, because Emmett was a joker. His cousins would recall, like, He's, he, he was a shit talker. Like Which when, is my favorite type of personality. Like when he was walking with his two older co uh, cousins in the uh, hood of Chicago, he would say things like, oh, yeah, my two big cousins can take anybody. They said they're from the South. They don't care about no northern gangsters, stuff like that, like very loud in public. See, and he was just being a young child. Right. You know, we've we've all been joking around with our cousins or friends downtown Pittsburgh or wherever you're from. Listen to this. 
you've been in Main Street just being a little dickhead because you're 13, 14, you like to have fun. Right. So his mom feared, worried about her son traveling to Mississippi, but her uncle reassured, reassured her that conditions in the South had improved and that Emmett would be safe. Wright had, after all, cleared $250 that year for a sharecropping work. For the first time, he owed nothing to the plantation owner. Hooray. Oh, yeah. But another thing about Emma, uh, not Emma, Emmett, sorry, big cat. Uh, Emmett was that he had told his mom, like, he was such a homebody, such a good kid. He told his mom, if you work and clean at your job, I will work and clean at home. And he cooked, he did the dishes, he cleaned so the house. So by all accounts, he was just a very, he was a sweet boy. Uh, he liked to joke around. Good, fun kid. Right. Life in Mississippi had never been better, Wright said, and he knew that Emmett would enjoy spending time with all of his cousins down on the farm. Still, Emmett's mother worried that her son wouldn't know how to treat white people in the Jim Crow South and warned him before he left Chicago. This is going to floor you. She said, if you have to get on your knees and bow when a white person goes past, do it willingly. That's so disgusting to hear. As a former resident of Mississippi, she knew the penalty that would come with violating a Jim Crow law. With his mother's permission, Emmett and his cousin Wheeler Parker set up the trip. They leave Chicago on Saturday, August 20th, a few weeks after Emmett's 14th birthday, and travel by train to Monet, Mississippi. Dan, were you saying something that whole time? Yes, I was. Did you not hear I, me? I did not hear it at all. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. I heard you when you said and traveled to Monet, Mississippi. That's, uh, they left Chicago on Saturday, August 20th, a few weeks after Emmett's 14th birthday, and traveled by train to Monet, Mississippi, the tiny country town near Moses Wright's farm. Emmett agreed to meet Wheeler and Mose at the uh, Central Street Station for the trip to Mississippi. But on the appointed day, he got to the station late and missed the train. And here's another little story that will tug on the heartstrings. One of the documentaries I watched, his mom mentioned that they were late. So Emmett just ran from her. And she said, boy, you better get back here and give your mama a kiss. What if I never see you again? Oh, Lord. And Emmett said, Mama, don't be silly. And his mom would later recall, like, I don't even know why I thought that. I I don't know why. You know, just, just, just to humanize Emmett Till as much as possible. Um, right. You know, I, I, uh, I personally always make sure when I leave just to hug my mother, just because I, I know how fleeting life can be. Oh, and I feel so sorry for this. Oh, yeah. Well, and we talked about the casket and everything earlier. She was a sad, strong woman. She was an incredibly strong woman. All right. Oh, man, my thing skipped ahead. Royal Clark, back to where we were. 
Okay. That's all right. We we can you, we can always cut stuff out, right? Yeah. <laughs> Once I figure out how to do that, yeah. A boom bop. We're still learning, folks. <laughs> Technical <laughs> difficulties and uh, what in the history? Boom bop. <laughs> he got oh, to uh, the station, missed the train. He would have never made it to Mississippi for the few, first few days in M. Um, but he was able to catch a later train. Uh, for the first few days in Monet, Emmett had a great time. His cocky personality and fantastic stories about life in Chicago made him a local celebrity amongst the Mississippi kids. His southern vacation was even more fun than he expected, but the fun came to an abrupt end on Wednesday night, August 24th, when Emmett crossed a Jim Crow boundary he never really understood. So Emmett was joking about uh, basically lying about having white girlfriends and stuff like that. And it was commonplace for uh, black kids in the North to cut out pictures of women from the newspaper and carry them in the wallets. That's so, like, common for, for people now still. Yeah. I remember, and not to be, you know, take it back, but in prison, people still do that. So like all these kids in the South saw, thought Emmett had all these white girlfriends and stuff. So, I mean, he was a he was a slick talker from the city. Yeah. Uh, they damn, enjoyed him, and damn and city ki- slickers. You know, kids often like to believe stories, and I remember all types of stories. I remember I had a classmate in third grade tell me about the killer bitch roaches, which was the gang war in his apartment between all the roaches that were in different gangs, and they would do drive-bys in the bathroom and shit. Hilarious, and I believed it because I was little. <laughs> So Emmett and his cousins attended a church meeting where Mose Wright was preaching, sitting in a stuffy country church with no (laughs) air conditioning on a hot, humid August night made the teenage boys restless. So early in the sermon, they snuck out of the church, hopped into Wright's 1941 Ford, and drove to Monet to check out the action there. For the poor children of the sharecropping families, the center of social activity in Monet was Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market, a small white-owned store on Old Monet Road that catered to local black sharecroppers and field workers. People young and old hung out on the store's front porch, playing checkers, listening to music, and swapping stories. When they got thirsty (laughs) or needed a snack, they could go inside and buy a cold RC cola and other odds and ends. The shop owner, Carolyn Bryant, who's a name you're going to learn to hate, had won a few beauty contests. What was the name again? Carolyn Bryant. Carolyn Bryant. And had won a few beauty contests back in the, uh, back in the day. And the local boys knew this, so they dared Emmett to ask her out because of his tall tales about dating white women. So Emmett enters the store by himself. No one could hear what Emmett and Caroline uh, Bryant might have said to each other. What actually happened inside was only known to Emmett and Mrs. Bryant. Unfortunately, Emmett... So we don't even really know what happened. At this point, no. Okay. 
Unfortunately, Emmett leaves no testimony, so the only accounts available are those of the young people who are at Bryant's store that evening in the courtroom testimony of Carolyn Bryant. It should be noted that after more than 60 years of determined silence about this case, Carolyn Bryant finally confessed that her testimony in the trial contained lines, lies and exaggerations. When did, she, it, when did she come out with this bullshit? 2017. Oh, Wood finally made her fucking say this. She's dying of cancer or something oh, like that. Oh, fuck this. Cunt yeah. wanted to get it off her chest, said she yep. murdered a little boy. She also adds that it wasn't her that made up the lies. It was. Oh, her get the fuck out of here. She was complicit yeah. and the guilt falls on yep. her. She killed a boy. What, what else did she confess to on her deathbed? <laughs> this really that Emmett didn't do anything. He was a I hope boy. I hope she is suffering and burns in hell for this shit because I'm sure the terror that that little boy experienced was beyond fucking belief. I hope whatever terminal illness she had, I I didn't look up to see if she died yet, but I just hope it it provided a world of pain. And that mother, that goddamn beautiful brave mother who suffered for a lifetime, but. but she she had to in order for this to come to attention because yeah. I can just imagine how many fucking times this happens without it ever being thought of. So, uh, Caroline said, uh, let's see, finally confessed, blah, blah, blah. Bryant, the boy, asked for some candy, and when she um, held out her hand for his money, she grabbed it, pulled her towards him, and said, how about a date, baby? Caroline Bryant said his audacious question shocked and angered her, and she jerked her hand free and headed to the apartment in the back of the store where Juanita Milam, her sister-in-law, was. Before she made it to the apartment door, the boy stopped in front of her, stepped in front of her, put his hands on her waist, and said, you needn't be afraid of me, baby. I've been with white women before. My Lord. At that point, one of the boy's friends rushed. This is Carolyn's original testimony. Okay. One of the boy's friends rushed into the store, grabbed him, pushed him out the front door. Mrs. Bryant told the judge that before the boys were out, the northern boy turned and said, bye, baby, to her. Furious at the boy's uh, rudeness, she ran out the front door to get a pistol from her sister-in-law's car. When the boy Good Lord. Saw, yep. When the boy saw her outside, she whistled at, or he, she said he whistled at her, the two-note wolf whistle. You know, wow. I don't know, like, yep, like that, loud. His cousin said it was loud. Oh, okay, so maybe with his fingers. Yeah, I can't do that one myself. Before his friends pushed him into the car and drove away, Mrs. Bryant immediately went back into the store and told Juanita what had happened. In court, Caroline Bryant said that although the rude and uppity behavior of the black boy scared and angered her and her sister-in-law, they decided not to say anything about what had happened. There would be big trouble. The eyewitnesses account from the young people who were outside the store cannot, of course, provide any information about what Emmett had said inside. But they See, can. Oh my God! Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, it's just like oh, it'd be big trouble. But 
she was going to get a fucking pistol. Right. That's that's big goddamn trouble. <laughs> they can't describe what happened inside, but they can describe what happened when he came out. Some of Emmett's cousins were there that evening and had spoken about what happened at the grocery and meat market on the night of August 24th, 1955. None of them claimed that Emmett had any way put his hands on Carolyn Bennett. Various witnesses confirmed that evening's event. Most also added that when Emmett left the store, he whistled at Caroline Bryant. Emmett Till's mother, Mamie Till Bradley, heard those reports, but she didn't believe that her son would have been foolish or bold enough to whistle at a white woman. A few weeks after his death, he explained that what sounded like a wolf whistle was probably just Emmett's attempt to whistle out of sound to clear his stutter. And we talked about this earlier. He survived, oh, yeah. He survived polio, and this is the only side effect that he had was his stutter. And the way he would clear it is he would clear it with a loud whistle. Wow. That's, that's just so more likely is, <clears throat> I don't know. I wasn't in the store, but more than likely, maybe he gave her too hard of a look. Yeah. He came out. She didn't like it. Wanted to, you know, wanted well, to feel like a big woman. He started to stutter, you know, so or so he whistled to clear his throat. She said, oh, he whistled at me. I'm going to kill him. Look, I'm not promoting catcalling at all, but even if he did catcall, that's no reason to fucking kill him. As the boys <laughs> sped away from the scene and rights card, they were happy with excitement about what their crazy cousin had done. But when they got further from the store, they began to realize the seriousness of what happened. They knew chances that were good that even if Miss Bryant or her family didn't find a way to punish Emmett, Uncle Mose would punish him, maybe his cousins too, when he found out about Emmett being disrespectful. Recalling that drive back to the, uh, at Bryant's store blew through the county like a dust storm. Black residents who heard about the wolf whistle at Byron's store could talk a little of anything else. And within two days, nearly everyone in the county, black and white, knew the sensational news. This, this is this is so such horse horseshit. Right. Oh, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. All right. So Moseus and his wife um, first really heard about this a couple days later. Uh, they learned about the incident uh, the day after it happened and fearing the worst, they considered sending Emmett home on the next available train. However, two days passed without any word. And they slept for, he slept for several hours before going to work at the store later that afternoon. Um, Is his grandfather? Yeah, his uncle. Oh, his uncle, okay. Yeah. And then, uh, so shortly after that, the store owner, remember his wife is the one that was, uh, uh, was whistled at. He figured it out or was told by a black customer a couple days later. Um, the news kind of became the talk of the store. It infuriated Bryant 
and as a racist white Southerner, Southerner he expected uh, black people to know their Jim Crow place. Uh, again, that's his. Okay, words. so he was real, real oh, hardcore yeah. racist. Oh, it's yeah. a, it's it's fascinating that uh, a a little boy whistling at a woman uh, was the talk of the store. Oh yeah. Um, especially when it came to white women, Brian immediately confronted his wife uh, with what he had heard. She admitted the rumor was true and begged him to forget about it. He oh. found, yeah, he found out that. that Emmett, I mean, that sheds a little bit of light on her, I guess. Doesn't change anything. Uh, no, she, it doesn't. Yeah. Is she could have told him that he didn't whistle at her, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. He found out that Emmett was staying with Mose Wright in a sharecropper's house out on G.C. Frederick's place. About three miles from Monet, Bryant had no car of his own, so he had to wait until Saturday night when his 36-year-old half-brother, J.W., Milam uh, came to the store. Bryant told uh, Milam what had happened and asked to borrow Milam's car. Milam offered not only to lend his car out to ride to Wright's house with Bryant to help him with work the boy over. Good after, Lord. Yeah. After uh, agreeing to meet later that night, Milam, Milam went home, filled his car with gas, packed his pistol and a flashlight for the night's dirty work. See, they knew it was a boy, and they still brought a pistol. They were coming for blood. Oh, 100%. They wanted to work the boy mm -hmm. over. He drove back to Monet around 2 a.m. to pick up Bryant. Mm -hmm. That same Saturday night, Emmett, Curtis, and Wheeler drove to Greenwood, the largest city in the county, to party at a juke joint. They didn't return to Mose Wright's home until well after midnight exhausted from a long day and a light night out the boys went to bed in one of the back bedrooms and quickly fell asleep not for nothing but at least he had a good night you know yeah <clears throat> as shitty as this is yeah what happened next was reported by mose wright in a television interview shortly after trial uh, Sunday morning around 2.30, someone called at the door, and I said, who is it? And he said, this is Mr. Bryant. I want to talk with you and the boy. When I opened the door, there was a man standing with a pistol in one hand and a flashlight in the other. Wright's the wife, hell of a way to open oh, the door. Oh, yeah. Wright's wife, Elizabeth, knew trouble had come knocking. When I heard the men at the door, she said, I ran to Emmett's room and tried to wake him and take him out the back door into the cotton fields, but they are already in the front door before I could shake him away. That's a shame. Oh, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Uh, the two men forced Wright to lead them into the back bedroom where Emmett was sleeping. They woke him, made sure he was the boy who'd done the talking. And after letting him get dressed, they took him outside to the car. They marched him to the car, Wright told reporters, and they asked someone there, was this the right boy? And the answer was, yes, it is. So it was more than likely that woman? 
Caroline Bryant. Yes, sir. Wow. Okay. I take everything back. She's a piece of shit then. Yeah. She just signed his death warrant right there. And during the trial, uh, she would say she's not there, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, she later admitted that he'd done nothing wrong, but I really don't give a shit. Yeah, honestly, the trial didn't even matter because they were going to do what they were going to do either way. They weren't going to get convicted where they were at. Right. Oh, no. Especially uh, with everything going on. You know, and that's that's like almost like it just mirrors the world we're living in today. You know, mm-hmm. where people can just kill people and get away with it. And, and it's public. Like, we've seen it happen, and people just get away with it. Oh, he Sometimes had, don't even lose their jobs. He had a bag of Skittles and a Sprite bottle. He was going to make drugs. Yeah. Bunch of bullshit. Um, so they then pushed Emmett into the car and drove off. And that was the last time anybody saw Emmett Till alive. So only two sources contain the detail of what happened after the men left Wright's house. is the murder trial transcripts, which disappeared a few years after the trial. I and, think those are probably even pointless anyways. And... And a couple weeks after the trial, there's an interview uh, of Brian and Milam had with the journalist William Bradford Hugh. Uh, so basically, uh, they basically admitted to killing uh, Emmett, but it was after the at, trial. After the trial, uh, double jeopardy. Um. So, yeah, so what's going to follow is from the interviews from this and the court transcripts, um, experts from the Hewell interviews appeared in Look magazines and Reader Digest. Uh, Hewell published a full account in his book, Wolf Whistle, and other stories. So these are out there. The men admitted their guilt, but there is nothing our justice system can do. Unfortunately. Right. So after leaving uh, Wright's home, the men dropped off the woman who had been in the car, probably Carolyn Bryant. Again, she never mentioned, uh, admitted to it, and nobody else ever said she was in the car. But who else could it be? Yeah. And they, they had to have an eyewitness. They had to have an eyewitness. Right. And they drove around Tallahatchie County hoping to scare and intimidate Emmett. At dawn on Sunday, they drove to shed on the plantation owned by one of Milan's brothers, Willie Reed, the son of a sharecropper, who testified in court that he saw Emmett sitting in the back of a pickup truck carrying two other African Americans and four white men, one of whom uh, Reed identified as J.W. Milam. Uh, Reed said later that morning that he heard sounds of a be- beating and cries of mama, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, coming from inside the shed. Oh, man. And saw Milam carrying a pistol leave the shed to draw water from a well. Three other white men were with him. If not known, it was not known if Emmett was dead or alive when they left the shed. Uh, According to Brian and Milam, after beating Emmett, they took him to the Tallahatchie River, and ordered him to strip. 
Malin claimed that even after the beatings, Emmett showed no no remorse for what he had done. That's when wow, Malin, what the fuck? Yeah. <sighs> yeah, this is these next words are the struggle. Uh, that's when Milan decided it was time a few people got put on notice. And he made up his mind to kill Emmett, just so everybody can know how me and my folks stand. When their evil deed was finished, Milan uh, and Bryant and whoever else was involved returned to the plantation, buried Emmett's clothes and shoes. <coughs> And then when he went, and then went home to bed. Back at Mose, just like it was nothing, right? Back at Mose, writes home. Emmett's relatives could hardly believe what happened the, that night, and were frantic with worry about Emmett. When I woke up the next morning, said Curtis Jones, one of Emmett's cousin, I thought it was a dream. I went to the porch and my grandfather was sitting on the porch. I asked him, Papa, did they bring Bo back? He said, no. I hope oh, they man. didn't kill that boy. Aren't you going to call the police? He said, no, I can't call the police. They told me that they would kill me. And I'm sure that they did, and I'm sure they were serious, too. Yeah. You know, because, yeah, they came in and got the boy, but I'm sure they were not pleasant to anybody that was – uh not white. Right. Using a neighbor phone, Curtis called George W. Smith, the LaFour County Sheriff, to report the kidnap. Then he called his mother, Willie Mae Jones, in Chicago and tell her what had happened. Jones immediately called Emmett's mother, Mamie Till Bradley. Mrs. Jones was historical on the phone. And at first, Mrs. Bradley couldn't understand what she was so upset about. When she finally heard clearly what had happened in Mississippi, Mrs. Bradley knew her son was in serious danger. But from her shit. Poor woman. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. She could do little except stay in contact with Mississippi relatives for news about Emmett. She also called Chicago police and asked them to pressure Mississippi authorities to look into the disappearance of Emmett Till. Like they were going to give a shit. Right. I did two things that were unexpected. Mrs. Bradley told an audience in 1999, I made up my bed and I began calling every newspaper I could think of. I expected no her. Yeah. What she did sparked an entire movement. I had expected no response from the newspapers, but to my surprise, everyone I called responded instantly. It was amazing. I think the papers and the television and radio, it seemed like they just latched on, and when they latched on, they would not let go. Around 2 o'clock. That's a good thing, though. Oh, yeah. I agree 100%. Um. You know, it unfortunately, it's all too late. Yeah. Around two Sunday afternoon, Sheriff Smith drove from Greenwood to Monet and arrested Roy Bryant for kidnapping. Later that day, J.W. Millam was picked up and he joined Bryant in the LaFour County Jail on the same charges. 
Both mm-hmm. men admitted that they had kidnapped Emmett from his uncle's home, but they told the sheriff they turned him loose after they took him to Bryant's store for identification. And Caroline Bryant said he wasn't the man who had harassed her. Wow. Oh. Bryant, I wish I could tell you it gets better from here. Brian yeah, and, it's... <clears throat> Brian and Milam remained in jail while Sheriff Smith and Tallahatchie County Sheriff H. C. Strider, which first off, that's a hell of a name, H.C. Strider, uh, searched for a third man involved in the kidnapping and gathered evidence to build a case against the suspects already in custody. In the days immediately after the arrest, neither the sheriff's nor Emmett's relatives could find any trace of the missing boy. Uh, Wednesday morning, August 31st, three days after the arrest, a 17-year-old white boy, Robert Hodges, fishing on the Tallahatchie River, saw, saw a pair of knees sticking out of the shallow water. Not sure oh, what he, yeah, not sure what he had found. Hodges contacted the Tallahatchie Sheriff's Office, and soon deputies arrived on the scene. They brought Mose right to the river with them to identify the badly mutilated, decomposed corpse. The body Good had, Lord. yeah, um, it had swollen to almost twice its normal size. The head bent had been severely beaten, tortured, horribly beaten, said one deputy. One side of the victim's forehead was crushed. And I had Jesus. Been... <sighs> uh, I just, before I get into this, uh, just want to let everybody know this isn't pleasant. And I had been gadged out, and the skull had a bullet hole right above the right ear. The neck had been ripped raw by the barbed wire wrapped around it. The beatings and three Jesus days in the Christ. river. Yeah. Uh, three days in the river had turned the face and head into a monstrous mess of stinking flesh. The remains were so grotesque and mangled that deputies could only determine that it was a young black male. God almighty. Autopsy had produced the only clear mark of identification on the body, a silver ring with the inscription of May 25th, 1943, LT. Mose Wright uh, recognized it as the ring of Lewis Till, Emmett's father, a ring that Emmett had worn. After, oh, after Wright identified the body, the sheriff gave orders to have it in the ground before sundown. And after Emmett's remains were sent to a black funeral home to be prepared for funeral burial while workers began digging the grave. The discovery of Emmett's body triggered a fury of action. Sheriff Smith added murder to the charges against Brian and Milam and the Greenwood. Like common- that mattered. Like that fucking mattered. Right. Um, honestly though, at first, before the media caught attention, the sheriff and everybody else in the county were appalled. But, I'm sure they were, but they were they were complacent. But what had happened... It wasn't was, the first time. What had happened was the North caught wind of this. 
And as soon as, you know, they sent all these newspapers and media and all this stuff down, uh, they became a battle cry of, oh my God, they're trying to change us. Um, which just. It's our heritage. Yeah. That bullshit um, argument. The Greenwood Commonwealth prepared the headline, Missing Chicago Negro Youth Found in Tallahatchie River for its Sunday afternoon edition. Curtis Jones called Chicago to notify Mrs. Bradley that the authorities had found her son's body and planned to bury it as soon as possible. They had planned that because of the damage? Yes. Uh Though nearly overcome with grief, she knew she had to think clearly and take the right action. She told her relatives that there's no time for crying and immediately started working on getting the Emmett's body shipped home. It's something that's a strong fucking woman right there. My God. That is a strong woman. She contacted uh, their local mortician and asked them to find a way to have Emmett's body returned to Chicago. Rayner and several other people began calling Mississippi to stop the burial that had the body put on the next train headed north. The grave was almost finished when Rayner finally received the approval to block the burial. A uh, Mississippi relative by the name of Crosby Smith gave the information to Sheriff Strider who acknowledged the orders to stop the burial and to have the body prepared for interstate shipment. They agreed to send the body to Chicago in the condition that the casket remained sealed. Uh, I am truthfully say that from the day I knew Emmett was missing, that divine presence moved in and it told me, I will lead you. I will guide you. Just obey. Every time I got across, I got to a crisis. I got that message, uh, said his mother. We were able to get that body out of Mississippi. And I guess if we stopped and screamed 10 minutes, the body would have been buried while we were screaming. Yeah. That same little voice. Wow. Yeah. But that same little voice told me, you do not have time to cry now. You will cry later. You will cry for Emmett Till. You will get the body out of Mississippi. Uh, I love it. I love her. I love her. And that's what I did. Um, When the casket was delivered to Chicago Mortuary, Mrs. Bradley had it open to make sure it really did contain her son. When I looked at Emmett, I cannot believe that it was even something human I was looking at. I was forced to do a bit oh by bit by bit analysis on his body to make really sure that that was my son. Oh my. If there was any way to disclaim the body, I would have that sent back to Mississippi, but it was with a doubt, Emmett. I know, Abby, it's terrible. Uh that was my darkest moment when I realized that that huge box had the remains of my son. The mortician arranged for Emmett's Chicago funeral to take place on Saturday, September 3rd. Uh, but the day before, Mrs. Uh, Bradley decided that let the people see what they did to my boy, and she demanded an open casket viewing. 
So many thousands of mourners thronged the viewing that the funeral had to be delayed till the following Tuesday. Open casket, my God. See, we talked about this before. If she didn't do yeah. this, nothing would have happened. Oh, I know. She just, I just, I can't imagine how difficult this had to be for her. Jet, an African-American National Weekly News magazine, launched the case to national prominence when it published an article about the murder that included a close-up photo of Emmett's disfigured head. And folks listening, if you are interested in it, you can still find him on Google's images, even though I do not uh, recommend it at all. I unfortunately came across it the other day, and it was very difficult to look at. Yes, terrible. Uh, people across the nation then joined uh, those in Chicago and Mississippi in their outrage over the brutal murder of the 14-year-old boy. As a large cow crowd of family members and supporters watched, Emmett Till was finally laid to rest in Burr Oak Cemetery in Aslip, Illinois, on Tuesday, September 6th. On the same day in Mississippi, a grand jury in Tallahatchie issued what many people considered an unprecedented decision. They indicted the two white men for the murder of the black boy. The indictment read, Roy Bryant and J.W. Millen, Millen did willing, willingly, willfully, unlawfully, feloniously, and of their own malice did kill and murder Emmett Till a human being uh, against, the uh, against the peace and dignity of the state of Mississippi. The grand jury, jury announcement stunned racist Mississippians and amazed Mississippi's black community. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so here's... A newspaper clip, uh, August 31st, 1955, the body of 14-year-old uh, kidnapped Chicago Negro boy was found floating in the Tallahatchie River this morning. Discovery of the body was made by a young fisherman who was inspecting his trot line. The body was in shallow water near the bank. It was reported and was found at Pecan Point near Phillips. The Sheriff H.E. Sheriff Strider was then notified at Charleston and Tallahatchie County of his find. He immediately called uh, the Sheriff's Office in Greenwood and reported the matter. So, basically, um, we can talk a little bit about the trial, if you will, but it's so the it's, trial it's pointless. The trial took five days. Every day there's 400, 450 people. You said um, it was all 12 white jurors? Yes, all white male jurors because that's all they allowed in Chicago at the time. Um, Jesus Christ. But this murder was the rallying cry for the civil rights movement. Um, so are you saying like it's what sparked it off initially. Like uh, obviously a, there were cries few, for it at some point. A few months after the trial ended, Rosa Parks decided not to give up her seat. Okay. 
Now, I'm sure she was probably aware of this case, but do you think uh, they were related or, or unrelated yes. incidents? Yes. Mm. Hold on. Dan says yes and immediately I, puts, he gives me a one-word answer and immediately puts a, a, a scoop of noodles in his mouth. No, I believe, I believe the entire nation didn't realize how racist the South was. And then this whole case came to the surface and then everybody else realized what black people in the South knew. Things were unjust. Things were not right. I believe. But things are still unjust and not right today. And it's no secret. Yes, I agree. It's not just the South. It's gotten worse. It's not just the South. It can be anywhere. But what this really caused was a spotlight to be shown um on the south what happens when the south is confronted uh segregation they had passed jim crow laws but no one in the south gave a fuck about it mm -hmm. and i really think when rosa parks was sitting on that bus she was thinking about emmett till she was thinking about the injustice against her and finally someone said enough we are done with this let's do this and because the trial itself, like I said, took five days. Every day there's 400 plus people in the courtroom. A lot of, um, like I said, the community was really against this until the North stepped in to try and change their way of life. And again, heritage, not hate. Well, your heritage is nothing but hate. Um, yeah. This hey, and if you're listening to this podcast and you disagree with that, go fuck yourself. Turn it off. Oh, 100%. Um, but I really believe that this is what sparked because this was a rallying cry. Everybody knew about this. Okay. Everybody knew what had happened to Emmett Till. And now finally, uh, people who cared knew about the plight. Because, yes, there was still segregation in the North, but as we talked, black people were still treated with some semblance of respect. But this kind of put a big spotlight. You know, you got politicians involved, the NAACP, um, and several other civil rights groups uh, rose out of this. And the world isn't perfect now, but it was way, way shittier back then. And if we, I, I, I would, I would agree to that. I would say, but it's on an individual basis. Yes. Because there's men dead today uh, because of racism. So I'm going to go ahead and say it's on an individual basis. Right. Um. But yeah, I mean, this whole thing was just terrible. Uh, I don't know if he picked up on it, but I had tears a couple of times. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard not to feel some type of hurt and pain when dealing with a story this fucked up. Like, so, this little boy didn't do anything, and he got brutally, it sounds like he got brutally tortured and murdered. Uh, they lynched him with barbed wire, uh, yeah, beat him fucking, pretty oh terribly, God. and then they shot him. They took a 70-pound uh, weight, tied it to his neck, and tossed him in the river. And then these oh, motherfuckers went to bed. They went to sleep. Called it a night. 
Uh, if you are more interested, you can actually find the interview um, that Brian and Milam had in Look Magazine. Uh, basically, like I said, they told this um, like two weeks after the trial. They were like, oh, yeah, we killed that person. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, and that's unfortunately, ridiculous. Uh, they were basically disowned by everyone in their community. The rest of their lives weren't great, but they lived them out of jail. Uh, and over the years, people had tried to persecute more and more. Uh, like the people still don't know who all was involved, but they tried to persecute people individually. Like um, they tried to uh, persecute uh, Caroline Bryant, uh, the woman who lied about the wolf whistle, but that yeah. didn't stick because there is no witnesses to say, oh yeah, she was in the car. It was all hearsay. And like we talked about earlier, she admitted that um, she had lied, but that was on her deathbed. She's just trying to feel better. And when when was her deathbed? I don't have the actual date, but luckily I got the power of the internet right in front of me. Well, the fact that she lived, though, you know what I mean? She got to live. Yeah. Those other guys that killed him got to live is fucking absurd and outrageous and disgusting. And it, it's not like they got to live, they did 10, 20 years, got out. No, they didn't do anything. Right. They didn't do any time. They were disowned. I'm sure uh, family warmed back up in later years. And when you're a fucking racist, it's easy to hang out with other racists. So I'm sure they weren't suffering too goddamn much. No. And the thing about that is what's really fucking with me right now is they got to live their lives knowing we got away with killing that little boy. Oh, I agree. I'm 100%. sure that got them the fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> and like, like uh, she had said earlier in the story, she didn't want her husband to find out because she knew what was going to happen. Then you don't fucking admit it to your goddamn husband. Right. If, if my wife asked me a question and I knew if I gave her a different answer, she was going to murder somebody, I would lie to her flat out. So she died at the age of 86. Um, oh, this February, bitch lived a good old yeah, life. February 27, 2014. 2000 what? 14. Jesus criminy. She just got to live her fucking life. Yep. And and I'm glad she carried that guilt with her cuz her admitting it on her deathbed means it must have burdened her. Oh yeah. She I'm, must I'm glad she had a burden. See, we're going to have a deep conversation here, but this is why I choose not to believe in uh religion because she was just basically like I don't want Jesus to know that I have this or drag this to the grade. So she basically cleansed herself. And it's like I don't know if I can believe in a heaven that she gets into, you know, <sighs> this world's so fucked up, man. Um, right on. If I, what else do you want to say? 
this whole that's uh, there, there's i mean we're fucking comedians you know the, there's nothing to make a joke about here there's nothing much more we could say this has been emotionally draining and taxing and you know we we tried with this one guys it was a rough go um we felt like it was socially responsible to to cover a topic that happened so long ago that still applies till today even um, even now today uh a week ago jacob blake oh he was a pedophile no he actually wasn't and he didn't deserve to get shot in the back seven times now when you say he actually wasn't you actually did some research on this yes because i noticed uh nothing but memes would say he raped a girl and the age would constantly Mm -hmm. change what it actually turns out is that an adult woman accused him of breaking into her house and raping her but there is no evidence to prosecute now uh see that's a tricky situation though what do you mean like i don't know how to how to how to mm, i'm not touching this yeah he didn't deserve to die he didn't deserve to get shot in the back seven times i'll stand by that oh yeah well i don't know about his past i don't know about who he was but i know in the justice system of the United States, it's due fucking process. You're innocent until you're proven guilty, and you're not allowed to shoot people in the fucking back and kill them in cold fucking blood in public. Yet these people get the fuck away with it. I I thoroughly enjoy how passionate you are, brother. <laughs> it just it's sickening. I dude, I understand a hundred percent, and I hate to like I don't want people to think I'm making light of the situation, but to hear somebody that I truly care for get upset what abby you got yourself back there uh actually care about something so much like i've never heard johnny talk in anger until these past yes until these past couple of issues and it's just i get it and all this is just complete bullshit come on i'll put it um the clearest way possible when I walk out of the house, I don't necessarily uh, fear for my life, but I have too many people that I love that I know uh, because of the color of their skin can be perceived as a threat and just gunned down in the fucking street, and that's terrifying. Right. Like, I've been called a, uh, a virtue signal. I, I don't care. I don't care what people say about that bullshit. Suck my dick, okay? None of this shit is right. The fucking systematic racism, the police brutality, all of its horse shit. And like I said, all you cocksuckers who are waving that rebel flag, if this offends you, turn it the fuck off. Go and fuck yourself. Bingo. So anyway, uh, that is part two of uh, what in the history's coverage of Emmett Till. I, I think we did him justice. What do you think, Johnny? I don't think um, I could ever do him justice. I agree. But I, I th- as far as podcasts go, we went very in-depth into uh, what happened to him, the climate. Um, I really hope someone listening to this, this definitely changes your mind about what's happening today. Uh, that was kind of my hope when I started this. Because I think um, what had happened right before uh, we decided to record this was uh, the death of that little boy, Cannon, 
and people are like, well, if it was a black person, well, they said justice for Cannon, justice for Cannon. But the guy was arrested. He was going through the process. What? That's the justice. You just wanted attention because he was a white kid. It's unfortunate he died. I'm very sorry for, for that little boy's death, okay? I take no pleasure in it. But the guy who killed him was arrested, and he's going through the process. You asking for justice for Cannon makes you sound fucking stupid. So – uh, I decided to record these episodes to show that, uh, well, in history, when a black boy is killed, he doesn't get justice. And there is unfairness in this world, and there is evil in this world, and it does dictate on the color of our skins. And <clears throat> here it is. Uh, I, I, I really hope that we covered this well. Um, I really hope uh, that we didn't necessarily make light of this, but made it easy. Yeah, that was not our intention at all. Um, We are comics. Uh, I'm not saying we're trying to make fun of the darkest situations, but I really hope we were able to uh, make this uh, not necessarily easier to listen to, um, but not as terrible. it I'm going to be honest, Dan. We had almost absolutely no humor in this episode. The first one was, you know, there. The first but, one was a little better, but there was nowhere for it to go in here. There's literally no jokes can be made during what we just discussed I, and still I be was, considered respectful. But uh, I just, I, I hope um, if you're listening to this, I really hope that we did a good job. Um, if you did, please please email us at whatinthehistory814 at gmail.com. Please uh, message us on our Facebook page or on our Instagram page, both at whatinthehistorypod. Please let us know what you thought of this episode. Um, Unfortunately, we can't do anything more for Emmett than just tell his story. Uh, and I think we did it the best. If you do want to know more about his trial, there's plenty of YouTube videos. There's a very excellent documentary on Prime that I use for this. Uh, just type in Emmett Tell, it pops up. Uh, there are so many more sources to figure out about this. Uh, I, I definitely recommend uh, one of the books I used for this uh, was Getting Away with Murder. Huh, didn't they? Did they? Huh, did they not? Um, by Chris Crow. Uh, very well written. Uh, included a lot of information. But our next episode, which will probably be in two weeks after this one, uh, is going to be a little different. We're going to have a good friend of ours on, Joey Purse. Joey! Um we're going to cover Cyrus the Great, who was one of the first rulers of the Persian Empire. It's a very fascinating story if you love ancient history. Uh, researching this episode, I had no idea about it. and I It's going to be it, funnier. Oh, definitely. Um, and uh, Johnny, where can they find you on social media? I normally tell you where to find me, what I'd prefer if you want to do something for me. Uh, go and apologize to someone that you got beef with, someone you got a disagreement with. Just fucking say sorry, swallow your pride, make amends. 
fuck following me, fuck messaging me. Go talk to somebody you love but you're hurt with. That was beautiful. Uh, but I am not <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that good of a person. Follow me at DB Comedy 814. <laughs> uh, the only person I have beef right now I will never talk to again. So but what I can ask is if you see something on Facebook uh, or social media, take a step back, look at it. Uh, ask yourself, am I on the right side of this? You know, because a couple years ago, I will tell you guys, I was on the Republican side. But past few years have changed my life. And now it's. I have I'm, had uh, deeper Republican views. Um, in the past, yeah, I'm, I'm fiscally conservative, essentially, but I can't align myself with a party that is uh, just okay with the bullshit that's going on, and vice versa, I will not align myself with the Democrats, because they are just as full of fucking shit. Everybody like, could oh, have had power to Don't change. vote for this piece of shit, vote for our piece of shit. No, they're both pieces of shit. I love how this just kind of turned into a political tirade, but I'm here for it. I, I, I don't mean to be going off. It's been a long day, and, like, people get under my skin with this stupid shit. All right. Well, for what in the history, I am Dan Brady. I am Johnny Smith. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Please follow us. Please listen to more of our stuff. We have a small but powerful catalog uh, and I hope you turn in, <laughs> tune in to the next episode. Uh, thank you for listening. I hope you learn more. Y'all have a good day. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>